Welcome to the Natural Selection Presents Anomalies. Welcome back to another episode of the Natural Selection Presents. We are here to talk about anomalies. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Nick. Hi. We have Naomi. Hello. And I am Other Nick. Hello. How are you guys doing? It's another day. Another day. It is that. Naomi, do you want to tell the listeners who we are? Yes, I do. So we are the Natural Selection. We are a group of taxonomists who want to bring our passion for nature into the wilds. Each episode, we meet up. And in the first part, we talk about nature news, some interesting research we find over the last couple of weeks. And in the second part, we discuss a different theme and how that relates to animals and plants around the world. And sometimes in space. This week's theme is anomalies. <laughs> so how are you guys doing? You had any interesting nature interactions this uh, this week? I want to say... I want to say yes, but I think it's no. I saw a weird fox. You know, not in the cool one that we saw last year, Samson fox, but the, just like a sort of mangy fox, but like... Had no fear. An icon fox. Yeah, an icon fox out in the daytime looking at me like, hey, what do you want? So that's my nature interaction for the week. Oh, there's a bunch of bugs in my room now because it's springtime. Are they bugs? (laughs) You caught me there, Nick. Uh, Some of them are (laughs) bugs. Some of them are just insects. My interactions are insect-based as well. Actually, I've noticed a couple of moths flying around my room, which is nice because I'm like, oh, yay, spring, but also... Not nice because I don't want them to eat my clothes. But other than that, not not many interactions. Definitely, yeah, noticing a couple more insects. So I think I've seen some more bees out and about as well. I've had a really unproductive week for nature, but I did find a silverfish in my lemonade. Okay, so that's pretty close to home, but also horrible. Yes, yeah, it was it was a very um, personal nature interaction that I didn't necessarily want to have. Also, not a fish, not a fish. Should have, I wish I'd done that last week. I think I might have mentioned them last week, oh, okay. very briefly. Yeah, in my fish okay. rant. One of my fish rants. One of your many frequent fish rants that we finally broadcast. <laughs> thank, thank God. It's been really stewing under my pot for a while. I suppose on that note, we should get on with the news. I thought I'd kick us off this week but with birds. Absolute classic. We all love a bird. And part of the reason we love them is they're so colourful. And as biologists, and I imagine people who listen to this show, know why birds are colourful. Birds are often noted that the males are much more colourful than the females, and they use this for sexual selection. So what it will be is that the colour will be a signifier of health, and the more colourful the bird, the healthier it is, and the more attractive it would be to females of the species. So it's a good way for the females to assess how strong and healthy the males are. Or at least, that's what we thought. But an article published in Nature this week, a group of researchers were looking at plumage signals in tanagers, which is a type of sort of uh, red bird. And normally they would seek out food which had certain uh, pigments in it. And through eating this, it would make their feathers more colourful. It had uh, carotenoids in it. And so this is a really good signifier for the females because the more colourful the feathers, the more of this food it had sought out and it was a healthier bird. But... They found that some of them are cheating because they've evolved 
microstructures in their feathers. And these microstructures can actually enhance the colorfulness of those feathers and make them appear healthier than they are. So it's a way to cheat nature's test. Wow, that's really fascinating. Hmm. I thought that would be a good way to start us off, but we do have some other news. Nick, I believe you want to talk about sponges. Yeah, Nick, I want to talk about sponges on the move, which is not something I ever thought I would say on this podcast for many reasons, but partly because everyone knows sponges are boring. No, it's sponges that are, they're stationary. They don't move. But it turns out there's a study published in Current Biology this week. And I would, we usually say like, oh, it's an international team of researchers or it's a team from the U.S. And, and Japan or something. And this year, this week, my news is all authors from Germany, except for one author from the U.S. whose name is Christian German. So take that, figure that one out. And I thought I would, you know, we usually do a bit of a summary and and sort of trans, transform the news into podcast friendly um uh, something podcast friendly, but I thought that I would actually just read this directly to you guys this week because the into the little abstract for this article is so absurd. Uh, this is a study of findings of uh, trails left behind sponges that have slowly, slowly moved and left behind bits of their bodies as they move. As they go, they leave behind bits of themselves, and that's how you can see the trail. But I sort of prepared. I thought I would do a little like presenter newscaster thing. So. <clears throat> We're still, don't worry, we're still on the, the Natural Selection Presents, but in 2016, the research icebreaker Polar Stern surveyed the submerged peaks of the permanently ice-covered Langseth Ridge, a tectonic feature comprising the Karasik Seamount and two deeper seamount peaks abutting the Gekkel Ultraslow Spreading Ridge. A toad mer- I feel like we're in a sci-fi movie. A towed marine camera sled and a hybrid remotely operated vehicle revealed these peaks to be covered by a dense demo sponge community, at first glance reminiscent of North Atlantic geodia grounds. Sponges were observed on top of a thick layer of spicule mat intermixed with underlying layers of empty siboglinid tubes and bivalve shelves, a substrate covering almost the entire seafloor. We observed trails of densely interwoven spicules connected directly to the underside of lower flanks of sponge individuals, suggesting that these trails are traces of motile sponges. This is the first time abundant sponge trails have been observed in situ and attributed to sponge mobility. Given the low primary production in this permanently ice-covered region, these trails may relate to feeding behavior and or a strategy for dispersal of juveniles. Such trails may remain visible for long periods, given the regionally low sedimentation rates. You know, sometimes science can be thrilling. Um, I thought I would share that with you guys, though, because I read that and was like, this is so dramatic. I really enjoy the way you read that. That is really cool, though, just like that sponges move now, apparently. Yeah, this one just moved now. Um, and they also apparently live in such dense communities on seabed, like the seabed floor underneath permafrost, or that's not the right term, but underneath ice, that uh, I didn't know. I didn't know there was all that life over there in the ice, co- the permanently ice-covered submerged peaks of the Langseth Ridge. That does sound sci-fi. I also liked abundant sponge trails. <laughs> Demo sponge community might have been my favorite term in there. One I've never heard before, but um, it doesn't. It's not marked as incorrectly spelled in our document, so it must be real. 
<laughs> and Naomi, I think you're sticking with the underwater theme. Looking actually at coral reefs, uh, so this piece of work was published in Nature's Sustainability. It was performed by a group of researchers from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and also the U.S. Geological Survey. So they were looking at the value of coral reefs for mitigating flood damage in the U.S. So coral reefs provide many services to coastal communities and tropical storms are very common and the most costly natural disaster across the United States, but also globally. So these ecosystems such as reefs and beaches, dunes and wetlands are really important for providing a first line of defense against these hazards. These ecosystems are unfortunately being lost and therefore these services of protection that they're providing is also being lost at an alarming rate. So there is a recognition that these systems are offer an important value, but there's limited hazard mitigation and there's limited environmental management going on at the moment. So these researchers created a model using a combination of computer models, looking at storm waves, um, looking at engineering tools, mapping tools, and a lot of different interactions. And they created a detailed estimate of the value of coral reefs and how they defend the U.S. coastlines. So they looked at lots of different places, lots of different coastlines, so Hawaii, Florida, Guam, among others. So in this study, they found that the the coral reefs offer more than 1.8 billion in annual flooding protection to these coastal communities. So if they were to lose one meter of reef height, it would cause the 100-year flooding zones to increase by 23%, which would impact about 50,000 more people, which is about 62% more people than it currently impacts, and also damages 90% more property, which would come up to damages about $5.3 billion. So the study also found that the United States has about 200 miles of really high-value reefs that are worth $1.6 million per mile annually for the flood protection alone. So those high-value reefs are mostly located in Florida and Hawaii. So although, you know, it kind of seems worrying because these ecosystems are under threat, the co-author, Michael Beck, recognized that while sea level is a, a growing threat to coastal communities, losing an ecosystem like the coral reef can have a comparable effect in a much faster period of time. So it's really important to recognize that the reefs are in trouble, but it's possible to recover recover uh, these reefs and to help help them be restored if that proper management is put into place. So if money is invested in management and restoration, it could be possible to help support these reefs and keep them where they are, which is it's really interesting. So this work quantifies kind of the role of reefs in flood mitigation. And it gives evidence for kind of the support of why you might want to put money into protecting the reefs. Unfortunately, it's sad that sometimes we have to put a value on things, but, you know, sometimes that kind of talks a little bit louder in certain areas than just the pure science. So kind of on a sad note, I'll end this week, but yeah. some yeah. goodness as well. It's inherently depressing that when you hear news like that, we're so conditioned in the society we live in that we think, well, that's great news that coral reefs are valuable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Thank God they have monetary value, or else God. (laughs) How else would we quantify them? (laughs) Yeah. 
I did think that when I visited the Barrier Reef, and I remember I was scuba diving, and I was going horizontally over a reef, and as I came to the end, I sort of dropped down and dropped vertically upside down, very slowly, just watching all of the fish going in and out. Is it like a busy skyscape on a busy street? And I, I remember thinking, God, I bet that's worth a lot of money. Yeah, totally. All right, listeners, that does conclude the news. But please join us after this short break. We'll be back to talk about our theme, anomalies. Welcome back, listeners. We are here to talk about anomalies, and I'm here to start us off. Now, I did what I am often wanted to do on this, and I picked an animal with the most complicated name. But not only is it a complicated name, it is in a complicated... (laughs) It is in a subgroup of animals with a complicated name as well. Uh, And I'm struggling to pronounce anomalies over and over again, so I'm not sure why I did this. So, but there is a reason I chose this animal. And this animal is Henagoya Chokai. <laughs> and I think I'm editing this week, so I'm going to leave that pause in. Because I'm going to take you on a little journey through that second word and how it's spelled. Uh, and I found this has two names, but one of them is spelled Z-S-C-H-O-K-K-E-I. So yeah, that's a lot of consonants in a row. But luckily, it has another name, which is only slightly less complicated, which is Henagoya salminicola. And this is a really, really interesting animal. So this is the reason it's got it's one of its scientific names is the uh, Henagoya salminicola is that it is known because it is a parasite of a certain species of salmon. And what these are, this is actually uh, from a group of animals, which is the Mixozoa. And these are a fascinating group of animals because for a long time they didn't know where they belonged. So they are barely multicellular to the point where for a lot of the time of their history, they were grouped in with the protozoans. But now they actually think they're a very derived form of the Nadarians. And that they're related to jellyfish, but they're exceptionally small and they're obligate parasites. And they have some of the smallest genomes of all the animal kingdoms. But basically, they've they've lost as many genes as possible to become an efficient parasite and be able to reproduce quickly. But they've also lost many genes for like the nervous system, cell to cell communication and multicellular development. So in some cases, it's not very obvious that they're multicellular animals at all, which is why they were categorized as protozoans. But this one might take the biscuit. And this was because, as you guys know, when it's a parasite of an economic animal, that um, scientists tend to like to investigate it. And that's what they were doing. And these researchers from a university in Israel were looking at it. And with animals this small, one way to compare it to its next nearest living thing is by looking at its mitochondrial DNA. So it's a really good way to see the next nearest relative. And they were looking at it and they got the relative's mitochondrial DNA up. And then they went to get Henagoya salminicola mitochondrial DNA and couldn't find it. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, so this animal doesn't have a mitochondrial genome, which means it doesn't have mitochondria. No powerhouse. What this means is it doesn't use aerobic respiration to produce energy, which means, as of yet, it is the only multicellular animal that does not breathe oxygen. Whoa. Yeah, this is it. And it's a parasite that affects salmon that's a very derived form of a jellyfish relative. 
Now, they did look in its overall genome to see if they could find genes for utilizing oxygen to produce energy. And they found a few, but not as many as you would find in other species. So they could be just relics. But the weird thing is they have no idea how it produces energy. They just don't know. Another thing that makes it difficult is even though we find it in salmon, that's how we know about it. I mean, it's only in there for one quarter of its life cycle and it's not it's only an intermediate host. Uh, we have no idea where it goes when it's not in the salmon. Whoa, mysteries. Hey, if any listeners out there are listening to this, as I know you are, there's answers to be found. Go out and find them. If any of you out there are Henegoya Salmicola, drop us an email. But yeah, I thought that was quite a good anomaly to start us off. An animal that doesn't breathe oxygen. Come on, that's pretty good. It's good. That's a good one. I have to be honest, I had a pretty difficult time this week. Yes. Uh, finding things for the, the theme. I Most of the things that I was like, oh, I bet there aren't that many of this. And either the things that I found were actually a ton of things and not major anomalies, or there was nothing. One of the things I tried to do is find animals without tails. And I thought that it would, you know, humans um, on tails. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's one. Yeah, but then but then it depends on how you define tails. So is it an external skin flap or is it caudal vertebrae? And it turns out all mammals have caudal vertebrae. Even the Manx cat and the roe deer, which don't have external tails, and the apes also don't have external tails. But then they, you know, then they have the, the caudal vertebrae. So I thought, I don't know, that's kind of like a tail. It's basically what a tail is. Um, but anyway, regardless, it's not an anomaly because so many things don't have the external tail, even if they have the caudal vertebrae. So anyway. I ended up somewhere else. I thought, well, what's the opposite of not having tails? Having okay. tails. Having having long, long tails. Your whole, you all <laughs> use a tail. The, on one side, no tails. On the other side, just a tail. Snakes. So I wanted to know if there were any snakes with legs. And I did a little research, and it turns out there are a, f- a couple of fossil snakes that have evidence of limbs, mostly the hind limb, but only one called Nahash, is the genus name, has proper hind limb girdle. So this was a fossil snake described first in nature in 2006. Two authors, uh, one from Brazil, one from Argentina. And this genus of snake, it's a basal group of snakes, this, this group. So it split off before all of the living snakes today split off from the snake group. So it's like a, an, early, a, an early attempt at snakes. Found in the late Cretaceous in Patagonia in Argentina uh, about 90 million years ago. And it's retained its hind limbs. So some other Cretaceous snakes and some living snakes also have the retained hind limbs, but they're internal. Just like we have tails that are internal, these snakes still have little bones where their limbs would go. They still have a little pelvis, but they're not external from the body. But the Nahash is unusual in that it has well-developed legs that extend beyond the ribcage, and the pelvis is still connected to the spine. Otherwise, it has still some basal features of snakes in the skull and in the spine. It's pretty like, yeah, it's an early branch off the snake branch, and it shares a lot of things with sort of the, the Ur snake, the first snake ancestor. But it sort of, it's like an Archaeopteryx in many ways. It's like the intermediary between lizard-like ancestors and, and the snakes that we know today. 
Um, even though it's not a direct lineage descendant, it branched off and went a different direction. It shows us a bit how that transformation happened. First with the loss of the upper, the upper limbs, the forelimbs, and then eventually with the detachment of the pelvic girdle. It's unusual, and this is its anomaly status. It's the only snake ever found in the fossil record or present that still has its sacrum. It's pretty cool. The sacrum and the pelvic girdle are still there in this species. And if you look it up, they're super tiny. They're like a couple of inches long. They're very small. The very last thing that I wanted to call attention to, because we talk about naming so much because we're all taxonomists, is the genus name, which I've been struggling with this whole time because it's spelled, it's spelled N-A-J-A-S-H. And I think that it should be pronounced Nahash because it comes from the Spanish verb, the Spanish form of the Hebrew word Nahash, which is what the snake in the Bible was called. And if you read the Bible, I had to do a little research here, but the snake that tempts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden has legs in the Bible. And so that's where they got the name for this. And then as punishment for tempting Adam and Eve, God says you have to crawl on your stomach and eat dust. And that's why all the snakes now have no legs. Uh, And famously eat dust. And famously eat my dust. Eat my dust is what God said to the snake. Do you know what we got out of it? We have to toil the land and women get pain in childbirth. True, true. And there's one other thing that might that maybe come up, comes up later when we lost one of our quote unquote ribs. We'll talk about that later. Little teaser. What's really weird is you would. Yeah, you bring up its biblical link. And also it's the only snake with a sacrum, which is the Latin for sacred bone. Aha. Brilliant connections made on the natural selection. The natural selection presents connections. So it's interesting you bring up mythical beasts because, Naomi, I feel like you're straying into this territory. Yes, in a way. So I'm glad that you um, introduced it like that. So I wanted to talk about the Cambrian explosion um, and some weird Cambrian animals. So the Cambrian explosion is an event that happened about 542 million years ago. It seems seemingly an overnight increase in multicellular life. It's definitely something that we've touched on before, but I felt I could not include these unique animals in this topic. So some of the creatures are so striking that they were once believed to represent entirely novel and now extinct phyla of life. So as you mentioned, it's kind of almost mythical creatures. However, that's not low. That's not really accepted as the wisdom anymore it's now you know recognized that a lot of these animals are actually related to current extant animals they just maybe look a little bit different than what we have around now actually another thing i found today was the period gets its name from cambria which is the latin name for wales where the britain's cambrian rocks are best exposed and it was named by Adam Sedgwick who was one of the pioneers of geology that studied this rock strata. There's really exceptionally well-preserved soft-body fossils from this age. The first one that was found was the Burgess Shale which is in Canada. These kind of really well-preserved both hard and soft fossils. There's now dozens of these type of deposits all over the world where you can get comparable assemblages of fossils. These type of formations are called lagerstadt. Apologies if I'm saying that terribly. But it basically means that there's exceptional preservation going on there. 
So a lot of the animals I'm talking about have been found in these kind of really well-preserved states. So you're getting a good example of kind of the hard parts of their body, but also some of the soft parts as well. So you're getting a, a better view of these fossils than from some other formations. Interestingly as well, apparently the Cambrian has a really high percentage of these really well-preserved assemblages, more so than other ages, which is interesting. So I wanted to talk about a couple of these really cool, weird genuses for a couple of reasons. One, they're they're very weird looking. And two, a lot of them, because obviously they're only known from the fossil record, a lot of them were maybe identified or interpreted in the wrong way. So I thought that I would kind of go through some of that as well. So one I particularly want to talk about is Hallucigenia, which is a genus of Cambrian animal. If you are able to, I would recommend Googling this to have a look and an image in front of you so you can see what it looks like. Its name reflects its really weird appearance, but also kind of its history of when it was reconstructed. It was originally reconstructed upside down. So to give you kind of an idea of what it looks like, these animals, so it's a genus, multiple different species within this genus, they vary between about half a centimeter to 5.5 centimeters. They're long tubular organisms and they have seven or eight pairs of slender legs, each with a small pair of claws at the end. On their back, opposite their legs, they have a conical spine that's rigid. So you can kind of understand how they were reconstructed upside down, because if you're not aware which one is the legs and which one's the spine, they easy-ish mistake to make. Also kind of hard to tell which end is the head and which end is the tail. These are now recognized as lobopodian worms which is kind of a catch-all taxon that contains a number of kind of odd worms with legs they're kind of considered to represent an early ancestor of the living velvet worm although some people kind of contest this and maybe put them a little bit closer to arthropods the final animal i want to talk about is animal acaris and this one is a cool animal because it its name means unlike other shrimp or abnormal shrimp which I thought was fun. Perfect. Yeah, it's thought to be closely related to ancestral arthropods, but it was previously identified as three separate creatures. Uh, because it has a mix of mineralized and unmineralized body parts, it tends to get separated when it fossilized. So its mouth parts was harder and more likely to get fossilized and was first identified as a jellyfish. It took them a while to figure out what it was, but eventually they discovered that it was a sort of weird shrimp-like animal and thought to be one of the earliest examples of an apex predator so yeah that's my roundup of some weird and fun cambrian animals definitely worth a google um there's a lot more as well a lot more interesting animals but those are some of my favorites cool the more you know that's what i always say about the cambrian i'm also amazed that it's named after wales but i know the yeah the welsh call themselves cymru don't they so i suppose that is still similar I went back to home, you know, I went back to my home home turf here for my surprise topic today. I, I wanted to introduce this with a with some facts and see if you could guy if you guys could guess what an anatomical element uh, I researched this week for my anomaly theme. So I thought I'd start by saying it's pr- most placental mammals have this. It's like it could be like a twenty questions thing or like a riddle. It's a it's a riddle. It's like from The Hobbit. It's one of those riddles. Most placental mammals have this, but not the hooved mammals, the ungulates, elephants, the lagomorphs, the, the rabbits and things, 
hyenas, binturongs, serenians and cetaceans, and notably humans. Don't have it. A couple of other things. It's present in other apes, but completely lost in humans. It independently evolved at least nine times and has been lost independently at least 10 times in other in separate lineages. And in some species, it can be used to determine age. Would I find it in a museum in Reykjavik? You would. You would. Definitely. You'd probably find a few. Okay, I think I know what this is. Naomi, do you have any guesses? I can give you a couple more hints. Yeah, I think I might need... I had a few, and then, as you said, other things, I, I narrowed them out as not being that. So it's it can often take both cultural and practical use in native Alaskan cultures, where it's called an usik, when it comes from walruses, seals, sea lions, and even polar bears. Sorry, Nick, I I love that fact. That's a great fact. But I love that you're like, do you want me to give you another clue, Naomi, to see if you get it? So in native Alaskan culture, Naomi. <laughs> I think I might don't have worry, gotten, don't worry. I'm getting somewhere. I might have gotten it. I'm getting somewhere. I oh, yeah. have a guess. Yeah. But go, go. I'll finish the just the, what, yeah. what they're used for. Fossilized ones can are often polished and used as handles for knives and other tools. United States Congressman Don Young from Alaska is known for once having brandished one like a sword during a congressional hearing, which is probably the worst thing I've ever heard. Okay, I'll take your guesses now. Is it a penis bone? Nick? Yeah, the bacula. It's the vacuum, the penis bone, the usik in the native Alaskan cultures. Exactly. Um, so just to go. By the way, also, side note, Nick. I feel like if you think that's the worst thing you've ever heard from the American Congress, <laughs> don't watch any more recent American Congress videos because I feel like I'd much rather watch some of them brandish baculum than <laughs> what they're currently doing. All right, noted. <laughs> but I uh, know, good point, Nick. Um, no, it's um, it's just so brash. It's so brash. Yeah, like I said, humans have lost it, but our other ape compatriots still have the baculum. Most placental mammals have one, and I think they're they're quite interesting. There's many. I would, I, try, I wanted to figure out what the competing theories were for why it's been lost in humans, particularly. And in doing that research, man, was there a lot of pseudoscience and like total crazy. There's a lot of crazy there. So I read through a lot of these theories, and the two that I found the most promising were a very recent view. There's a paper that came out this year, actually, that did a sort of comprehensive look at these theories of why the bacula may have been lost in humans. And the theory is that maybe it's an example of neoteny in human evolution, which is, it's sort of like um, where the adult form takes doesn't continue past the development of the fetus or the fetal form in related species. So, for example, in chimps, the chimpanzee, fetus doesn't have the baculum, uh, but it gains it in post-fetal development. So that's one possible example where it's just it didn't develop and then it wasn't needed anymore and that's why it was lost. It happens a lot in a form called pedomorphogenesis, uh, which is where things begin to look like young, they sort of, the the adult form begins to look like juveniles of their ancestors, um, which is a common trend in, in evolutionary development. 
But the, the thing that I found maybe the most promising is that um, the rib taken from Adam to make Eve was a mistranslation of sort of suggestion at that bone in humans. But that's just another theory. Well, of all the people I thought would be mentioning the Bible twice, actually, it probably would be you. You are a literary correspondent. So. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Yeah, not my usual fodder, um, but it worked today. That's amazing, Nick. I've had a soft spot, so to speak, for the Baculum ever since I saw the museum in Iceland. So, yeah, a really fascinating place. If you've ever been Reykjavik, give it a go. It's fun. Uh, the one he's talking about is the Penis Museum. It's my turn. And I'm going to take our minds out of the gutter and into the fields, because I'm here to talk about plants. Now, we had a good go last week with seeds, and I want to talk about a specific plant. So I want to talk about Monotropha uniflora. Have you guys heard of this? I have not. Not yet. No, not familiar with it. So it's sometimes called the ghost plant, the ghost pipe or Indian pipe. Uh, You can find it in Asia, North America, and even South America, but it does have large gaps between its range. Now, what makes this amazing is that this plant is sometimes completely white. Completely white? Yes, which is not something you really want from your plants. If you have a little flower box and the plants come out completely white, you would think it's not a healthy plant. But this is perfectly healthy. And that's because we're so used to plants being green because of one very important chemical, which is chlorophyll, which fill their chloroplasts. And these chloroplasts are sort of the equivalent of the mitochondria in animals. They they create all the energy by absorbing sunlight and turning that into energy for the plant. Now, this plant, the reason it isn't green is because it's not absorbing its energy from the sun. It's getting it from somewhere else. It's from a group of plants which undertake mycoheterotrophy. Now, you might have heard of some similar terms because uh, you might have heard mycorrhizal and mycotrophy. And what this is, is you get mutualistic mycorrhizal relations between plants and the fungus underground. And these plants can join this fungus network and share uh, nutrients to other plants which are also plugged into this fungus network so they're all contributing and taking out of this big network as a way to sort of share these resources now what monotrophy uniflora has learned to do is basically steal from this network so it's sometimes called a mycorrhizal cheater because while it is taking nutrients from the mycorrhizal network it's not putting any back in So it is literally stealing the energy from the fungi, which is getting it from the plants. This is a bit of a knot, a pretzel. It is. It's a rather complicated knot, which is why I don't want to make any mistakes. There's a lot of technical stuff going on here. Basically, yeah, it's parasitizing fungi, but the fungi are in a mutualistic relationship with other plants which are giving them those nutrients so it's hard to say who it's really parasitizing i mean it's sort of both but it as a plant it is plugged into that fungi but yeah there are some other species that do that there's some orchid species which do that which are uh, micro heterotrophic uh, they're non-photosynthetic 
for some of their life cycle and you do get other plants that do it that are parasitic and they tend to have quite unusual uh, colors they don't have to be green they can quite often be yellow and things like that but this is amazing just because it is you see it is a waxy white color it looks like a ghost it almost doesn't look real it looks like something from like a, a mario game or something it's it's quite amazing but this is quite an extreme reaction the full loss of photosynthesis because it means they're they're obligate they 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 cannot produce their own energy they're only doing it this way which yeah might lead them down an evolutionary dead end or something because it's not giving them options but these guys have committed fully to it they were thought previously to get their organic uh, matter similarly to how fungi do which is by breaking down organic matter uh, and they used to be called uh, saprophytes plants so they thought were able to do that but now we fully understand that they are using a fungi in the soil to get their nutrients so they're not actually breaking it down themselves but yeah, I've given you an animal that doesn't breathe oxygen and a plant with no chlorophyll. I just looked up pictures of these, Nick, and yeah, you're right. They do kind of look like from a video game. They're pretty sci-fi, like that sponge text we got earlier. Yeah, really, really cool looking. It's almost like kind of parasitism, but I don't know if it could technically be called that. It is definitely parasitism. Oh, okay. But um, it has like its own specific subgenre of parasitism. But it's quite an unusual relationship. But yeah, it's essentially stealing from a group. It's very, very strange. But I see that this plant might link quite nicely to what you want to talk about, Naomi. It links incredibly well, actually. So I want to talk about albinism. And just as kind of a way of introduction before I get into how it relates to your topic, it's a disease that affects melanin production. And so in mammals, this means that the animal has inherited two genes, one from both parents, that interfere with melanin production. So it is a recessive trait, and it's quite rare. So non-mammals can also be albino, but because they have other pigments, they tend to not just appear fully white. But the reason that this is cool is because some plants can also be albino as well. So not only does it refer to kind of the condition that affects melanin but it also refers to some plants that don't produce chlorophyll one particular plant i wanted to talk about was albino redwood and it matches quite similarly to what you're talking about in that because it doesn't have chlorophyll it therefore can't create its own food so it completely relies on its parent plant and it kind of acts like a parasite and takes nutrients from its parent plant it's kind of right beside it but its leaves are all white it doesn't have the green pigment but there's lots of other kinds of animals that can be albino. So it is re- relatively rare in nature, but you can still see it. So animals have been spotted from the skies to the seas. So and actually, apparently in some cultures, albinism seems to be sacred when it's found in animals in the wild. So I want to talk about some animals that have been spotted in the wild that have albinism. So whales. There's a whale in Australia who's been a humpback whale. His name is Migaloo. He was discovered in the 90s, and he is an albino whale, so he's, he's fully white. Another whale was discovered in 2011. A calf was seen. Now, this calf actually, although it does appear to be fully white, this may not be a case of albinism, and I'll get into this in a second. A lot of animals that have albinism end up in zoos or nature reserves. As you might imagine, there are some problems that come along with albinism. So one is poor eyesight. So kind of the lack of pigment in the eyes affects eyesight. So in these animals, they would have kind of 
pink eyes and fully white fur and skin. There's also complications to do with skin cancer because they don't have protection from the sun. Also, they're quite visible to predators as well. So there's kind of a couple of examples as well I have from animals, albino animals in zoos and nature reserves. So one is Alba. She's the only known albino orangutan. She is a member of the dwindling population of Borneo orangutans. Last I've heard in 2020, she was doing well in the Bukit Baka, Bukit Raya National Park, um, which is a protected area. I definitely butchered that. To be fair, it doesn't really need to be protected. It's quite hard to find on Google Maps just by typing it in. (laughs) Another one is Claude, the albino alligator. He's in the California Academy of Sciences. I've actually seen him. Also in the wild, you might find some kangaroos, some caribou, moose. There's also in Olney in Illinois, there's, so while it's generally not great in the wild, there is a population of nearly 100 albino squirrels. And the town is so proud of them that they encourage their residents to feed them and they pass a law to protect them from being hit by vehicles, which is pretty cool. But something I want to touch on, which I kind of alluded to earlier, as I mentioned, albinism affects kind of the melanin pigment. So if an animal is albino, it means that they don't have any pigment, so their eyes will be pink, fully white skin. There are other pigment conditions where you kind of see other levels of pigmentation. So kind of some of these things that get mixed up are animals either who have kind of a rare polymorph where they're white. So some things like that might be kind of the spirit bear, which is white tigers and lions. Other animals, for example, the Seneca white deer, which is a rare herd of deer living in New York. They're actually just kind of a a rare color morph of white-tailed deer. They're not albino. Um, Another kind of genetic condition that is kind of similar to albinism, but not the same, is leukism. It affects how pigment reaches feathers and fur. So it's kind of quite often seen in birds. And you probably actually may even have seen it in some birds like pigeons. And that's kind of reflected in more patchiness rather than lack of colour completely. But yeah, that is all I had on albinism. I thought it's kind of an interesting example of something that's a little bit out of the ordinary, kind of a rare genetic occurrence. I had no idea. Thank you for all that info. It's super, super cool. Also, I'm looking at pictures of Alba right now, and I'm like, ah, whoa, it's really cool. I happen to know a very useless fact. So albinism, as you mentioned, is often touted as an inability to produce melanin. What if I told you that all albinos, well, definitely all albino mammals, I know for certain, and I think all albino animals produce melanin every day. Where does oh, it go? interesting. Yeah. Because it is used as an essential neurotransmitter in the brain. And without it, I think it's a neurotransmitter, it's definitely an essential chemical for uh, our brains. And without it, we would die very, very, very quickly. And it's so crucial that even albino people produce melanin in their brains. Huh, I wonder, huh, cool. There's so much about the body that I don't know. Yeah, interesting as well. I didn't spot that when I was looking up stuff about albinism, but that's really, that's cool. Good to know. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I learned a lot this week. That's amazing. We will be back next week. We've got an interesting theme, which will be hands and feet. Can't wait to get my hands and feet 
on that one. Brilliant. Listen. Um, well, I'm just glad you dipped your toe in. Well, join us next week for what will be a quite extreme version of digital communication. But for this week, from all of us at The Natural Selection, it's goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. The, uh, I will admit that both Naomi, when you first said it, and Nick, when you just said it again, I thought you both of you were talking about whales. And I was like, no, the Latin for whales is cetus, for cetacean. Um, different kind of whales. Sorry. Mind's on, my mind is always on mammals. The Welsh are still mammals, Nick. <laughs>